Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. Good things, important things, are often hard things. Have you ever noticed that? If you're going to do something that is really good or something that's impactful, a lot of times it's hard. It takes a lot of work. Uh, You know, I think one of the best things you can do, for example, as a parent is eat together as a family. I mean, honestly, you should be eating at least one meal a day together as a family. And on the weekends, you should almost eat every meal together as a family. That's just a priority. And, I mean, there's just something magical when you're sitting around the table eating, breaking bread, talking. Even if it's just for 15 minutes, there's just something powerful. And families that do that really do well. But that's hard to do, isn't it? I mean, it's just a simple thing, but it is so hard to, to do because there's so much competition. There's the schedules and all that stuff. Good things, impactful things, important things, they're always hard things. And so what we've been doing uh, the last week and what we're going to do it again today is asking ourselves why. And last week we saw one of the answers, and that's because there's an enemy. Satan does not want us to do those good things, those important things, particularly those things that are really in the calling that God has on our lives. Well, this week we're going to see another reason. So I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah is one of those books that is right at the very end of the Old Testament, right before you get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're there, Go a little bit to the left, back towards the beginning of the Bible, and you'll find Zechariah. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. Zechariah and a guy named Haggai were two prophets that God raised up to help the people really get going on doing his will. See, Israel had been taken captive. They, They had lost the war, and a whole bunch of them were taken as POWs, and they were out of the land for nearly 100 years. When Nebuchadnezzar came in about 600 years before Jesus, I mean, he totally demolished that beautiful temple that Solomon had built. He totally dismantled them as a nation. Their government was was in the drunk, you know, the, the, the pits. It was just totally dismantled. But then, miraculously, in about 530 B.C., God providentially moved in the powers that be to give those Jews the permission to go back to the land and not only become a nation, but rebuild that temple that Solomon had built. Well, they went back in about 530 B.C., and they were there for nearly 20 years, and nothing happened. And they couldn't blame it on the architect, because the architect and all the plans were already there. They couldn't blame it on the funding, because the funding was already there. The government was going to pay for it. They had no good excuse other than the fact that they just never got around to doing it. And so this horrible thing was happening. It's like, They were supposed to go back and be God's people, as he had called them to, and nothing was happening. 
And you know who felt the worst about it? The leaders. And so God raised up Haggai and Zechariah, and, and, and basically some of what they had to say was specifically to the two key leaders. Who were the two key leaders? One of them was Joshua the high priest. He was the spiritual leader. And we saw a message that God gave to him through Zechariah last week. That was Zechariah 3. Who was the other key leader? You got Joshua the high priest. He was the spiritual leader. The other key leader was a guy named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the king, a direct descendant of David and Solomon. And this guy was the primary political leader, the primary government leader. And like I said, Joshua and Zerubbabel, because their attitudes were right, their hearts were right, they understood what they were supposed to do, they understood this calling that God had put on their lives, they understood the mission of what they were supposed to be to the world, and nothing was happening. And you talk about feeling like a failure, Joshua and Zerubbabel felt like failures. And God gave a good word to Joshua. That's what we saw last week. That's in Zechariah 3. And today what we're going to do is look at the good word that God had for Zerubbabel in chapter 4. Now, the way these things happened was one night, Zechariah, okay, don't get confused with these names. There's Haggai and Zechariah. They're the prophets. They're the prophets, that, the preachers that God raised up to preach to these people and say, hey, get moving on this thing. 20 years is a long time. Let's get going on the project. And who were the two key leaders of all the people? Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel and through one of those prophets, Zechariah, God had this special word for Joshua and a special word for Zerubbabel, who was the king. And the way God gave him these particular messages, the way God gave them to Zechariah, was they were in a dream. One night, the guy had eight very vivid dreams. You talk about uh, sleeping uh, roughly, that, that was a rough night for him. And that's what the first several chapters of the book of Zechariah are. Well, look at chapter 4, because this, I think, is the, the fourth dream of eight dreams that the guy had in one night. The third dream applied to Joshua the high priest. Here's the fourth dream. Look at it. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Then the angel, as he was dreaming, you know, it's kind of like that uh, Lewis uh, Carroll's, uh, the Carols of Christmas uh, story. You know, there's some angel leading him through these dreams. The angel who was speaking with me returned and he roused me. It's like Zacharias, he's having these dreams. He drifted off to sleep and, you know, the angel had to wake him up and say, hey, listen, let's pay attention. Verse 2, and he, that's the angel, said to me, now what do you see? And I said, well, this is Zechariah speaking, what do you see? I said, well, I see, behold, a, a lampstand, all of gold with its bowls on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it, and also, there's, there's two olive trees by it, 
one on the right and one on the left. And, you know, that, that's what I see. So here he is. He, he, he kind of wakes up and hears this angel say, okay, look, what, what are you seeing in this dream? And essentially what he says is, I'm, I'm seeing this candlestick, this seven-tiered candlestick, and it's got some bowls and all that stuff. Well, what was it he was seeing? Remember? He was seeing the candlestick that was in the temple. Now, this is really cool, okay? Watch the screens here. Two weeks ago, Vicki and I and some of our kids got a chance to be in Rome, and we went to the Roman Forum. At the entrance of the Roman Forum, the Roman Forum was kind of like downtown Rome 2,000 years ago, there is this arch, and it's called the Arch of Titus. Titus was the general who defeated Jerusalem and sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. And to commemorate his big victory, they built this arch. And as you can see, you know, it's not a great picture there, but you can see there's all kinds of decorations in it. Let me zoom in to some of the decorations because it's, it's, it's commemorating their defeat of the Jews, their sacking of Jerusalem. Look at this. Look what some of the people are carrying. Do you see it right up there at the top? The menorah, the candlestick that they got out of the temple. The temple that Herod had built, which was basically a rebuilding of the temple that Zerubbabel is ultimately going to build, which was basically a rework of the temple that Solomon had built. And so that right there is probably the best picture we have of what it is that Zechariah is seeing in his dream. Let me uh, get another picture here that might make it a little clearer for you. See it right there? And here's all these people carrying it. Now, what was that unique candlestick? Well, if you look at the description that's there in verse 2 and 3, it's almost like this candlestick was a little bit more uh, elaborate. It's like it was a candlestick on steroids, if you will, okay? Because it's got these bowls. See, here was, here was the challenge, you know? Uh, everybody in their work has challenges. You know, preachers have challenges. Engineers have challenges. School teachers have challenges, you know what a priest in the Old Testament, one of their challenges were? Keeping the oil in the candlestick going because that candlestick was supposed to continually burn. And so they were regularly having to go in there and pour the olive oil so that the thing would keep going because it was always supposed to be illuminated. And that thing just burned up olive oil like crazy. Well, look at it. As Zechariah is describing it, this thing is really, you know, this is high-tech, okay? There's these bowls, and from the bowls are these little tubes that are going down and supplying all the oil so that those seven lights are never going to go out. And on top of that, do you see that in uh, verse uh, 3? On top of that, there's, there's an olive tree on one side and an olive tree on the other, and those olive trees are, have little spouts in them that are dripping the oil into the bowls, which is going down the tubes to illuminate the lamps. 
You know what the word to describe this, this technology? Sustainability. <laughs> I mean, this lamp was never going to go out because you got two healthy olive trees supplying the oil to supply the oil for the lamps. This thing was never going to go out. This was like a priest's dream. This thing would always burn. Now, we read through that, and we're like, okay, this is kind of freaky, a little weird. Who cares about a bowl and olive trees and all that stuff? But let me tell you, if we were really immersed into our calling as Jews, as the nation of Israel, as Zerubbabel would have been, man, he would have thought this is really incredible. Because, see, that lamp, that candlestick... It was representative of Israel's mission. Israel's mission was to be the light of the world. And when that candlestick inside the temple inadvertently went out because someone got there a little bit late with the olive oil, it's like they were falling down on the job of of this imagery that we are God's people with a message for the whole world. And Zerubbabel was like, man, at least we will have that problem taken care of because this light will never go out. This candlestick represents what we as a nation are supposed to be. Now, if that doesn't click with you that much. Let me just tell you, you know what? People that are really steeped in, in the Old Testament and in, in the mission that God gave to the original children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it really, this vision is huge. Let me show you one more graphic. Look at the screens here. Anyone recognize that? That is the insignia of modern-day Israel. I mean, let me tell you what, the folks living in Israel right now, they know this passage, or at least they know the concept of this passage, Zechariah 4. They say, this is what we as a nation are called to be. We're supposed to be the light of the world. And so here you got the menorah with the seven candles, and what's that? It's an olive tree. That's another olive tree. This is right out of Zechariah's mission, out of Zechariah's vision that he had. And it was illustrating what Israel was supposed to be. Now, back off and let's think about the context. Here is Zerubbabel. He's the king. He is the direct descendant of David and Solomon. And he's been king for 20 years. And what have they accomplished? Nothing. Have they even gotten the dirt moved to get the temple going? Hardly. They, I mean, it is like they have been spinning their wheels. And like I said, who felt the worst about all this stuff? The two leaders, Joshua the priest we saw last week and Zerubbabel the king that we're seeing this week. And here is this dream that Zechariah has that he's ultimately supposed to go tell Zerubbabel about. 
And he says, hey, you know what? I had a dream and I saw us as this candlestick that just is supposed to illuminate the truth of God to the world. And it was so designed that it would never go out. It would shine brightly to the masses. That was the vision that Zechariah saw that he was ultimately supposed to go tell Zerubbabel about. Now look back at the passage. Look at verse 4. Then I answered, and I said, okay, what are these? What are what? These, these two trees. Sir, the, so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, no, I really don't. And it's like the angel is probably flabbergasted. Well, you are really thick. You don't know who these things are? And then notice he goes on and he talks about something else. We'll get back to this question in a, in a little bit, down at about verse 11. Look at verse 6. What he does is he starts to give him a message. Okay, you've seen this really unique candlestick, Zechariah. Here's what it's supposed to communicate. Here's the message. Look at verse 6. And he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. In other words, here's what I want you, Zechariah, to go tell King Zerubbabel, who is feeling really down and discouraged because this project is moving so slowly. Here's the first thing I want you to tell him. See it there, halfway through verse 6? I want you to go to him and say, not by might, not by power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. Zerubbabel, here's what I want you to know. And you know what? This is good for all of us to know. Because in the same way that God called Zerubbabel to do something, build a temple, God has called you to do something. God has called you. You have a calling on your life. If you are a spouse, God has called you to, to regularly build up and, and disciple that spouse of yours into a more godly state. If you are a parent, God has called you to rear those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you are a grandparent, God has called you to have a spiritual impact in your grandchildren's life. If, God, if you are an engineer, God has called you to go be a godly, biblically oriented, hardworking engineer for that whoever it is you're working for. If God has called you to be a teacher, God has called you to, to be Christ in that classroom, teaching algebra, teaching chemistry, teaching Latin, teaching history. If you are here today and you have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior in the same way that Zerubbabel had a calling on his life, get this nation together, let's build the temple, let's start being the people of God so that we can shine out bright to the nations. God's got that same kind of calling on you. Trouble is, is most of the time we're oblivious to it. But we have that same kind of a calling. 
So this message that God's going to give to Zerubbabel about his calling, it's applicable to you and me about our calling. And here's the first thing. He said, Zerubbabel, I want you to know it's not by might, it's not by power, it is by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, here's the deal. It is not you that is doing this. It is God. See, that is one of the biggest problems we have. We think it's all on us. Remember, I I, I started off talking about how good things, important things are often hard things. And why is that? Well, last week we saw it's because we got an opponent. Satan, that was all through the vision that he saw about Joshua the high priest. Today, one of the reasons we find out that that stuff is so hard is because we think it's all on us. We think we're the ones that's going to build this thing. We're the ones that are going to teach that thing. We're the ones that are, the results depend on us. And you know what? There's an element of our contribution to it. We'll see that as the passage progresses. But at the end of the day, the bottom line, you know who is the foundation of it all? It's God. And God was saying this not to just some, you know, bricklayer. He was saying it to the king who commands armies and sets budgets and figures out economic policy. And he's saying to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, it is not by might. It is not by power. Let me tell you what it's by. It is by my spirit that this thing's going to get done. I mean, for Zerubbabel building that temple, can you imagine being the leader of a group that was supposed to go in that day and age, who was supposed to go and rebuild Solomon's temple? I mean, if, it, if it's been a while since you've read through First Kings or... Uh, uh, Second Chronicles, and seen the description of Solomon's temple with all of its gold and its elaborate architecture and all that stuff. I mean, incredible. And Zerubbabel was tapped by God to lead the charge in rebuilding Solomon's temple. You talk about a mountain that had to be moved. Well, that's why God wrote verse 7. Here's what you can say. What are you, O gray mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will just become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Zerubbabel, this weight is not on your shoulders. You've got a part in it. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But Zerubbabel... I'm the one doing it. And see, the biggest problem today for us believers is we think it's on us. When something happens, all of a sudden we're like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Wow, who am I going to replace that person with? How am I going to fix that? We don't have enough money for that. This can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. And all of a sudden we are panicking like crazy because... We think we're the ones that have to fix it. Oh, my goodness, my spouse did that. Oh, my goodness, my kids did that. Oh, my goodness, this employer is just proposing that. What am I going to do? And God says, ask me. I will tell you. This isn't on you. 
Let's just, let's just get one thing straight right from the beginning, God wants to say. You cannot do it. You are finite. And I just threw a, a huge mountain at you. Don't think you can do it because you cannot do it. It is not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, God says. It's not you. It is God. And then I love, I absolutely love where the next where this goes. Verse 8. Also the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation to this house. See, see they had gotten a little bit going. They'd kind of shocked it out. Maybe if they had stakes and string and all that, they had gotten out there laying it out where the thing's supposed to go. But, you know, in 20 years, they did what, about two days of work here. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation to this, of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Look at verse 10. You ought to underline this. If you've got a real Bible in front of you, you ought to underline this, because this is a great verse. For who has despised the day of small things? Who, who has despised the day of small things? You know what God is saying here? Don't despise the day of small things. Don't despise little things as if they're not going to make a difference. His second point that he wants to make to Zerubbabel, don't despise small beginnings. I mean, look at how, look at how the passage goes on. Man, the seven eyes of God see Zerubbabel out there with a plumb line. Now, now just think about it. He's the king. And in modern-day terms, he's out there with his level and his trawl and his shovel. And you're kind of probably, if you were an observer, would look at him and say, isn't that a little bit beneath your pay grade? I mean, you know, I don't think Solomon got out here and did it. it. Don't you have people that you can hire to do that? Aren't you supposed to be managing people that will do this stuff? Well, evidently they weren't stepping up. And Zerubbabel, the king, was having to roll up his sleeves and actually get out there in the dirt and make this thing happen. Can you imagine going to the White House and, you know, because the government's always expanding the government and they need more office space. And, you know, you went and you took your White House tour and you went out back and there's Joe and Jill and they're in their work clothes and Joe's trying to lay out the new floor plan for the South Wing because we're going to put more offices back there. I mean, isn't, isn't, didn't somebody else take care of that? Why do you have to do that? Isn't that beneath you? Zerubbabel was actually having to get out there with a little plumb line. Yep, oh, no, 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 move it over. No, no, okay, no, no, you know. I mean, how humiliating. He's the king. He is a direct descendant of David and Solomon. And what did he have to do? He had to mop the floor. He had to clean the toilets. He had to sit and make sure they were going to build a wall plumb. And if ever there was a small thing... It was that, and God said, don't, don't. 
Don't despise the day of small things. You know, when I read a passage like this, I think of October 15th, 1943, Dutch Harbor, Alaska, when David Wallace and Melvin Hart finally talked this, this rotten pagan sailor named John Hornock to go to chapel with them. And even though there's 100,000 sailors in Dutch Harbor, Alaska, because it was at the height of Second World War, how many people came to chapel that Thursday night? Melvin Hart, David Wallace, and this drunken sailor named John Hornock. And I often think of what did J.D. Tullis, the chaplain, think when he had an auditorium that would hold several hundred people and three guys showed up and one of them looks like a pagan because he is a pagan. Mel Hart and David Wallace were believers, strong believers. You know what I would have done if I was chaplain J.D. Tullis who had put a lot of time and energy into his Bible lesson for the night? I'd have closed it up and said, hey guys, why don't we just, let's go to the mess and we'll get a cup of coffee but you know I've got something really good I'm going to save it when a whole bunch of people show up no the guy carried on as if there was a thousand people there and that's the night my dad got saved and it totally changed the course of Hornock history because my dad was the only believer of 11 children that came out of that household don't despise the day of small things. I mean, how many times have you and how many times have I as a parent seen something that's going on in our kid's life and it's like, I do not have time to do this. I mean, can we, can you just move it along? I, you know, I don't want to get excited over your B minus on your math paper. I mean, those things are super strategic in the life of a child. Small, because I'm taking care of big things. I'm preparing sermons. I'm meeting with people. I'm going to the hospital. I'm getting ready to do a funeral. You know, maybe I'm getting ready to design something for the paper mill. I don't have time to spend time with my kid or my spouse or whoever. Don't despise the day. God says, get rid of this worldly thinking. I mean, you guys think like the world, he's saying. It's my world. If I start something small, don't despise it because you don't know what I'm going to do with it. Zerubbabel, if I have you doing all the plumb line work, that's what I want you to do. Don't despise it. Look at the passage. He said, the eyes of the Lord, and notice there were seven eyes, and, you know, we all know probably in Scripture, whenever you see the word, the number seven, it it seems to indicate perfect or completion. The, The perfect, omniscient eyes of God see what is going on, and they range to and fro throughout the earth because God is looking for people that are going to work for him. Zerubbabel, be that kind of person. Richard, be that kind of person. You, be that kind of person. It's not you, it's God. Don't despise 
the day of small things. Look back at verse 11. Remember, Zechariah kept saying, who are these two branches? Who are these? Two? Okay, I understand the menorah, the menorah that's going to burn bright because it's got this, this amount of oil that's coming in and it ain't going to ever go out. But who are these trees that are supplying the oil? This is where it gets really cool. Because that first point I said, it's not you, it's God, but you got a part. This is where the story kind of comes around full circle. Verse 11, then I answered and I said to him, okay, I understand everything else, but what are these two trees on the right and on the left? And I answered the second time and said to him, what are these two branches, which are besides the two golden pipes, which empty into the golden bowl from which... Uh, from themselves. So he finally answered me and said, do you not know? Well, no, I don't know, but I wouldn't have asked five times. That's why I'm asking. I don't know. Tell me who these are. Do you know who they are? No. I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. And you know what? He's not real super clear here, but most people, as we read it, understand that he is saying, these are the two anointed leaders that God has placed over the nation right now. And who are they? Joshua, who we saw last week, and Zerubbabel, the spiritual leader and the political leader. Both guys strategically placed to lead these people, but at that moment, both guys just discouraged as could be. And God is speaking into their situation and saying, you know what, I want to infuse you with encouragement. I want to anoint you so that you can supply the oil that will make this nation burn bright. I think the two anointed ones and a whole bunch of other people, a whole bunch of other Bible scholars do, as well. That's Joshua and Zerubbabel. These two messages last week's and this week's, chapter 3 and chapter 4, this is God's strategic message to this leadership of this nation. And you know what he was saying? I want to work through you. You guys are good enough. I don't need some superstar. I just need you, Joshua. I don't need some super king. I just need you, Zerubbabel. It's through you that I'm going to work. How do you take that and translate that into your life, to my life? You know what God is saying? I don't need someone different. I got you. I made you the husband or the wife of that person because you are who they needed to become all that they needed to be in Christ Jesus. I gave you as the parent to those children. I gave you as the grandparent to those grandchildren. I didn't need someone else. I didn't want someone else. I put you in that position because I want to work through you. You are my anointed one. These people don't need another lawyer. They got you. These people don't need another engineer. They got you. They don't need another teacher. They got you. She doesn't need another husband. She's got you. She doesn't need another friend. She's got you. 
You are the person that God wants to use. He has anointed you to, to roll up your sleeves and get working. And we're sitting there saying, okay, well, the first point said God's going to do it all. Yeah, and God wants us to do all that we can do. I mean, read through the Proverbs. No one is despised more than the sloth. The slothful person who just folds their arms and says, hey, there's a lion outside, but I think I'll finish this TV show. No, God wants you to get involved and work and do and all that stuff because he wants to use you. And at the end of the day, it's all him, but it's him in you doing the work. And that's what God was trying to communicate to Zechariah so that he would go communicate it to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. God wants to use you two guys to build this nation so that it'll be this sustainable light to all the world. God wants to use you so that he can accomplish whatever it is he wants to accomplish in your world. It's you. Kind of reminds me of the, the old preacher's story. This church was getting ready to do a building program. And, uh, you know, they needed more classroom space. And so they had the architect design it and they got bids. And it's like the bids came in and it's like, wow, that's a pile of money. And so they're having that proverbial congregational meeting to figure out, are we really going to do this? And some old guy in the church stood up and he said, well, man, I got good news and I got bad news. And uh, the guy, everyone's like, well, we want to hear from you. You're kind of the senior saint. What's the good news? God's got all the money he needs to build this project. That's great. <laughs> What's the bad news? It's all in your pockets. <laughs> you know? That's the thing. God wants to use you to change your marriage. God wants to use you to impact your family. God wants to use you to impact that place where you work. God wants to use you to help that person come to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior. The good news is... God's got it. I don't think it's necessarily bad news, but sometimes we take it that way. The bad news, it's me that he's drafted to go do it. I'm the one that's supposed to go talk to that person. I'm the one that's supposed to get my checkbook out and write the check. I'm the one that's supposed to say, hey, I guess I'll be that X, Y, Z. God wants to use you. And God said to Zechariah, is it to Zerubbabel and Joshua, these two guys that were had been beating their heads against the wall for, for 20 years. He's saying, Don't despise the day of small things. It's not by might, it's not by power, it is by my spirit, says the Lord. I want to use you to make this thing happen. Let's pray. Just before I pray, I want to give you a moment. Maybe, maybe there's something you've been feeling like God wanted you to do, or you've just been wrestling with it. It needs to be done, but you're just throwing up your hands. You don't know exactly how it fits in. Maybe what we talked about last week or what we talked about today might be uh, 
might supply some information or some insight. I just want to give you a minute to talk to the Lord about it. Just be you and he. Father, I thank you so much that it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by your spirit. I thank you that you are in complete control. I pray, Father, you'd give us the courage and the wisdom and the insight to step up. Father, help us to reject that worldly thinking that always tends to think bigger is better and more impact is obviously with you. And uh, help us not to despise the small, humbling, humiliating things you sometimes call us to do. I pray, Father, today that we would be encouraged. You didn't send Joshua and Zerubbabel to the locker room and draft some other people. You picked them and you stuck with them. And I thank you that you stick with us. And I pray, Father, that today we would leave today empowered to go do what you've called us to do. Because it isn't by our might, it's not by our power, it's not by our ingenuity. It is by your spirit. So we're excited to go see what you're going to do in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.